Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 856. As we continue through this Advent season, uh, we are making our way through the first section of the book of Luke as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. And so far in the story, there have been two miraculous birth announcements, one for John the Baptist and the other for Jesus. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see more of the significance of these births as Luke records a couple of reflections about what God is doing through them. And so we're going to start this morning with the responses of Elizabeth and Mary as we pick up in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so last week, the angel Gabriel appeared to a young woman named Mary and announced that she would give birth to a son whose name would be Jesus. However, as Mary picked up on, this was not going to be any ordinary child or an ordinary conception for that matter. You see, since Mary was still a virgin, Gabriel explained that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and supernaturally cause her to conceive this child apart from a human father. And because of this, the child would not be merely human, but would also be divine. So zooming out and putting it all together, we saw that in Jesus, that the second person of the triune God was taking on humanity to be born into our world as the Messiah. Well, as we pick up again here in verse 39, we see that in those days, uh, meaning soon after Gabriel spoke to Mary, Mary arose and went with haste to visit Elizabeth. And there's an obvious sense of urgency here that Luke doesn't explain, but it's not, it's not hard for us to imagine why Mary might want, want to see Elizabeth as soon as possible. All right, it could be that Mary woke up the next day and thought to herself, Wait, did that really just happen? Like, is, is this real life? Do I need to go see a doctor? Like, is, it, did, did an angel appear to me and tell me that I was going to miraculously give birth to the Messiah? Uh, it, it would be easy for her to question her sanity, perhaps, uh, with such, such a supernatural experience. But there was an easy way for her to find out. Gabriel had said that Elizabeth was miraculously pregnant as well. And so she could go and see for herself whether this was all real or whether it was just a big crazy dream. 
Uh, but we saw last week that Mary believed Gabriel's message. And so I think that it's, it's much more likely that Mary rushes to see Elizabeth out of a sense of excitement and, and a desire to share her joy with her. We have to understand that Elizabeth is probably the only person on earth who can, uh, who can appreciate what Mary is experiencing right now. Maybe the only person who believes her explanation of what's happening and, and who can help her think through how to navigate the complications that she's going to be facing in the coming days. Of course, Zechariah would probably believe her too, but he still can't talk at the moment, so he's not much help. Right? And so Mary packs up and makes the trip down uh, south from Nazareth to Judea. And when she gets to the house and calls out for Elizabeth, Luke tells us that Elizabeth hears her voice and immediately John leaps in her womb. He's doing front flips and cartwheels and all kinds of crazy things. All right, Mary's voice causes John to react. And I think this is fascinating because what it shows us is that even in utero, John is beginning to fulfill his mission of being the one who prepares people for the coming Messiah. All right, he detects Jesus' presence in Mary's womb. And, it, and it's like he just starts flipping out. And, and his, his mom, of course, is the only person he can really communicate with at this particular point in time. But it's like he's saying, hey, hey, mom, he's here. He's here. The Messiah is here. And, and at the very same time, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, who reveals to her the significance of what's happening and leads her to break out in praise and blessing. And so in verse 42, Luke says that she exclaimed with a loud cry as she pronounces a blessing on Mary and on her baby. And in verse 43, she asks, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I think this is interesting also, in that Elizabeth sees Mary coming to visit her as a high honor. And so I, I thought about this week, when, when we lived in Orange... You have to understand that the most famous person in Orange, Texas, is Earl Thomas. He was a, an NFL player who played several seasons with the Seattle Seahawks, seven-time Pro Bowler, Super Bowl champion, easily the biggest thing ever to come out of Orange, Texas. And it was so interesting to me, as someone who was not from Orange, to see how people would react to him anytime he was in town. I, like for me, it was really cool. I was like, hey, that's Earl Thomas. But the thing was, is that it was exactly the same way for anybody who was from Orange. They were all still like, hey, that's Earl Thomas. Now, now a lot of these people have known Earl his whole life. They went to school together. They, they played sports together. They lived in the same neighborhood. Right? But, but to them, he's not just Earl anymore. Right? Now he's Earl Thomas. Right? Because of his accomplishments, there's a sense of awe that accompanies him everywhere he goes, even among people who've known him his whole life. And I think that the same thing, only in a much more profound way, that, that same dynamic is at work here with Elizabeth and Mary. Right, we saw last week that they are related to each other in some way. Being much older, Elizabeth probably remembers when Mary was born. Uh, she remembers the time she said that really embarrassing thing at the family reunion. Right? But on this day, as Mary steps through the doors of Elizabeth's house and greets her, she's not just Mary anymore. Right, now she is Mary who is going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Elizabeth is honored beyond measure that she is, is given the opportunity to host her 
in her home. And in verse 44, she explains that when she heard Mary's voice, John leaped for joy in her womb. And incidentally, the, the word leap there is the same word that Malachi used to describe the people's joy one day when the, when the Messiah finally arrived. You may remember in, in chapter 3, verse 20, he said, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And here we see John being the first fulfillment of that. And then again, Elizabeth pr pronounces a blessing on Mary for believing what the Lord told her he would do. So Elizabeth understands the significance of what's going on, and she responds to this with praise and with a blessing. And we're going to see how Mary responds as we pick up again, beginning in verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, his, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, no doubt hearing Elizabeth confirm everything she's been told had to be encouraging for Mary and even reassuring. And beginning in verse 46, she responds with a psalm of praise for who God is and what he has done. As we read through it, many scholars have pointed out the numerous Old Testament references uh, and overtones that are present in many of the words and phrases that she uses. It has particular similarities with Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But as we saw back in the introduction, Luke is showing us in this story how all of the promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in Jesus. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Mary's words are full of allusions to the Old Testament as she expresses the significance of what's happening. As we'll continue to see as we make our way through the story, all of the Old Testament is coming to completion in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so as Mary draws from this rich history, uh, she, she composes this psalm. This psalm is often referred to as the Magnificat, which is the, the Latin translation of the first word of the psalm. And it can, it can be roughly divided into three parts. Mary praising God for what he has done for her. Uh, her praising God for what he has done for people in general. And then finally, uh, her praising God for the way he has kept his promises to his people specifically. And so first of all, in verses 48 and 49, Mary praises God for what he has done for her. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. As we saw last week, Mary is a no-name girl from a no-name town. She is, is the definition of insignificant in the ancient world. And yet here, she has been given one of the greatest honors in all of history. And she realizes in this moment 
that for the rest of time, people in all places will know who she was. And she will know how God used her in bringing the Messiah into the world. And so she praises God for this incredible blessing that he has bestowed on her personally. And secondly, in verses 50 through 53, Mary praises God for what he has done for people in general. And to start, she proclaims that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And we talk a lot about God's grace in, in the church, right, in the, in the scriptures. God's grace refers to him giving us blessings that we do not deserve. Right? God's grace is, is unmerited favor, and mercy is the, is the opposite side of that coin. God's mercy refers to him not giving us judgment and cursing that we do deserve. God's mercy is, is not giving us things that we do deserve. Right? And so here we see that those who receive God's mercy are those who fear him. You'll remember that fearing God was a major theme in Malachi, and we saw that it refers to seeing who God is accurately and responding to him appropriately, right? To have a, a proper reverence for God as God, which then leads us to live faithfully before him. Then in verse 51, Mary says that God has shown strength with his arm. And God's arm is an expression that's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God's strength and his ability and his willingness to deliver his people uh, from both physical and spiritual danger. And, and the way in this particular context that salvation has happened is by God confounding three different types of people. Right, Mary refers to those who are proud, those who are mighty, and those who are rich. And together, these words describe people in the world who, who based on their own abilities or their station in life, have a strong tendency towards self-sufficiency that, that leads them to reject God's authority over their lives because they have a feeling, a sense that they don't really need him. And in Scripture, as well as the rest of human history, for that matter, the proud, the mighty, and the rich also have a tendency to make life unnecessarily difficult for those who are not like them, for those who are humble, weak, and poor, which is something that God also despises. And again, in Malachi, we saw that the underlying fault of those who reject God's authority over their lives and rebel against, them, against him is the fact that they do not fear him. Right? But now, uh, the Lord has chosen to act in judgment against those who oppose him and his people. And so Mary sees him scattering the proud like an army that has been defeated in battle. He has overthrown the mighty from their thrones to establish a kingdom that will benefit the humble. And he has sent the rich away empty while filling the poor with good things. In other words, through the Messiah, those who have nothing to offer are going to be provided for. While those who want to rely on themselves and, and oppress others will be rejected and judged. And finally, in, in verses 54 through 55, Mary praises God for how he has kept his promises to his people. He says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so we see that the birth of this child is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, right? and with, with Abraham and his offspring. And so in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, the Lord tells Abram, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven 
and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And as the Apostle Paul would eventually clarify to the Galatians in his letter to them, the offspring referred to here what was not plural, it was singular. Right? Like the individual seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. God promised that an individual, a specific descendant of Abraham, would be the one whom God would use to bless all the nations of the world. And this child, this baby, is him. And now you'll notice that as Mary speaks about what God is doing and what he's going to do, she actually is using the past tense. She says things like, he has shown strength, he has scattered, and he has brought down, and so on. And this is another example of, of what we've seen before as, as what we call the, the prophetic past tense, which refers to the fact that when God determines to do something in the future, even though it hasn't happened yet, it is guaranteed. It will happen. There's no question about that. And so for rhetorical effect, Mary expresses total confidence in this future salvation by portraying it as if it's already happened. So reading these verses, I was driving in the car listening to Christmas music earlier this week when the song Mary Did You Know came on the radio. I really like the song Mary Did You Know. It's full of very thought-provoking word plays and expressions. But, but as we read these words, I think uh, we would have to admit that, that yeah, Mary probably knew. Uh, it, obviously, there were aspects of who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish that were beyond her ability to comprehend in the moment. Uh, but again, as we go through this passage, it's clear that she has a, a, a very obvious understanding of the big picture significance of what God is doing and is going to do through this baby. And Luke notes at the end of the passage that Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months, right up to the, the point where she's ready to give birth to John. And then Mary returns home to Nazareth. And so in our passage this morning, we continue to see that God always keeps his promises. As Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, the two of them reflect together on the significance of what God is doing in and through them. And by including this in the story, Luke is inviting his friend Theophilus, who he's writing this book to, uh, and, by, and by extension us as well, to better understand what is about to happen before it plays out over the rest of the story. And he's also inviting us to join Mary and Elizabeth in appreciating what God is doing and to worship him for it. Right, the, the blessing of Mary, the salvation of God's people, the fulfillment of God's promises, all of these things are bound up in the birth of this child. Mary praises God for giving her the honor of being the mother of the Messiah, who has come to deliver those who will recognize their need for him as he fulfills the promises God gave to his people thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago. That is what this is all about, and it gets to the very heart of what Christianity is all about. See, it's been pointed out many times by many different people that when it comes down to it, what separates Christianity from all of the other religions and philosophies of the world is this very fact of what God has done for us. Right? Everyone agrees that there is a problem. 
right? Christians refer to it as sin, but everybody agrees in some form or fashion that there is evil in this world and that we are all a part of it and that something needs to be done about it. But again, what separates Christianity from every other religion and philosophy is that every other system puts the ball in our court. It puts the burden of salvation on our shoulders. The the idea is that if we can do enough of the right things and if we can avoid enough of the wrong things, then we'll be good enough to experience salvation. But the Bible clearly proclaims that that is not possible. If God judges sin, then we are doomed. And there is nothing, there's no way around that. But the good news of the gospel is that what we could never do for ourselves, God has done for us in the person of his son, Jesus. This entire passage this morning is all about what God is doing to save his people. Not, Not about all the things that they need to be able to figure out on their own to save themselves. God saves his people. Jesus was born, and as God in the flesh, he lived a perfect life that qualified him to serve as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And he paid the penalty for our sin for us on the cross. And and according to, to Mary's words here, if we will recognize our need and humble ourselves in faith and repentance, then we will be forgiven of our sin and be reconciled to God. And eventually we have the hope that one day Jesus will make everything that is wrong in this world right again. Church, this is why we celebrate at Christmas. This baby in Mary's womb was born to save us. So this morning, let's join Elizabeth and Mary in magnifying the Lord for who he is and for what he has done for his people. Let's pray together.